Dear Father, I'm glad I get to be with my family today. People I love, people that I know love you. I'm grateful today that we get to gather on a beautiful summer day to start our day right, to focus our minds on you, to make sure our hearts are in the right place. Lord God, it's going to be a beautiful summer. We're going to have a lot of experiences along the way that are going to be great, but help us not to take a vacation from you. Help us not to miss these moments to gather together, to be in your presence, to be with other people who love you, and to keep growing. Growth never takes a vacation. And we look forward to the way that you're going to grow us this summer together. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, it is great to see you this morning. Have a seat. Welcome to Southfield Summer 2011. Uh, we like to, I've got a little tradition during the summer of bringing both services together. Uh, a lot of cool pieces of that. You know, people are on vacation, so it doesn't make one service feel real skinny. One of the things that happens during the summer that's fun is people find out who goes to our church. Every once in a while, someone will go, I didn't know you go to our church. I'm like, yeah, I've been coming for three years. Oh, summer does those kinds of things. The bad thing about this arrangement is uh, we only get one shot to get it right. There is no second service, so we will try our best, all right? It is good to see you this morning. Take this folder out, and on the inside, you're going to find a card that says Southfield Church on it. Put your name on that. If this is your first time with us, uh, fill out as much information as you're comfortable filling out. And if it's your first-time guest, on your way out, you'll notice a table Straight out the door, there's a book there by Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough. We'd like for you to take one of those as our gift. It, it just it explains how to have a relationship with God, and, and we hope you will, you will find it helpful. Uh, I don't know about you. I am still just living off of this fantastic, wonderful high of last Sunday. We had a great time, great picnic, great time baptizing people, great time hearing people's stories. And, and one of the things we like to do after a baptism week is uh, compile a video of the event. And so this morning, you're going to get to see four minutes of how fantastic last Sunday was. We're just a few weeks away from celebrating another birthday of this great experiment in democracy called the United States of America. We'll celebrate it with picnics and parades, with family, with friends, with fireworks. And central to that day is a declaration signed by some of the bravest Americans that have ever been known. One sentence in their beautifully penned declaration is considered to be one of the best known sentences in all of the English language and the most potent and consequential words in American history. You know them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these is life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't it interesting? Life and liberty are granted to everyone. But happiness isn't a given. Happiness isn't a guarantee. We're told that we have the right to pursue it, but we're not necessarily guaranteed that every American will be automatically happy. You know, since that day, we've spent 235 years in a rampant pursuit of the dream. We want to be happy. We say things like, I want to be happy. I deserve to be happy. You know, some people, even when they're considering doing something wrong, say, but wouldn't God want me to be happy? As if happiness is somehow uh, the greatest virtue. We're told by marketers that our pursuit of happiness can only be found in possessions. And so many people sit on this stack of stuff, and yet they still do not smile. Our generation has been a tribe of, of thrill seekers We'll do just about anything to bring a smile to our faces. We just want to be happy. That's all. Here's the sad truth. The harder we pursue happiness, the broader the frown grows on so many people's faces. It's as if the more we try, we just can't get there. And that lack of smile on so many faces seems to indicate that the pursuit isn't working. It's just not working. So many people seem miserable. The pursuit has led to sadness, to emptiness, and to despair. So much so that the most prescribed form of medication in our time is the antidepressant. Uh, We're just not finding the happiness we're looking for. The promise of an inalienable right to pursue happiness almost feels like a curse instead of a blessing for many. And this lack of happiness has not just been uh, consigned to the secularists, to the people outside of the church. It seeped into the church as well and into the lives of people who claim to be devoted Christ followers. Sadly, many Christ followers are just plain sad. In the early 60s, there's a great uh, British Bible teacher. His name is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He produced a book based on a series of sermons delivered at Westminster Chapel. The book is entitled Spiritual Depression. Listen to what he says. And remember, this was written in the 1960s, many years ago now. Believing as I do that the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church, the subject dealt with in these sermons is to me of the greatest possible importance. I want to catch this part. This is really important. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt, but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. I mean, think about it. Just think about this. Our lack of visible happiness at times has the potential of driving a person away from God. It causes others to continue their elusive pursuit of happiness in another direction, an empty direction. Now, I'm not just suggesting that we kind of fake it until we make it. You know, just put on a phony smile and and pretend that we're happy even though we're not. No, we have reason for joy. We really do. It's time we tell our faces It's time we tell our faces that we have a reason to be happy. Go ahead and do it right now. I'm going to smile. Kind of hurts, doesn't it? You're not used to those muscles. Uh, I've got one of those faces that just kind of naturally doesn't like to smile. 
this morning, one of our greeters was staying, and I said, if you don't smile, I'm going to beat you silly. We're talking about joy today. That's a great motivator, isn't it? We need to tell our faces that we're joyful. It's important. Have you ever caught somebody smiling and wondered why? That'll happen every once in a while in our house. I'll walk through the house, Kim's smiling or one of the kids smiling, and I'll, I'll kind of look at him. You know, what's your reaction? Think about it. What do you do? I, I look at him and I go, what? What? <laughs> Let me in on the joke. What? What's happening? Why are you smiling? What's going on? I want to know. You know what I'd love? I'd love that the happiness on my face and the happiness on Southfield's face would cause people to come to us and say, what? What? Why are you smiling? Because it's in that moment that we would be granted the opportunity to tell them of the reason for the hope and the joy that we have within us. We'd have an open door to say, I have a good reason to smile. I have a good reason to be joyful. And here's why. So this morning we're embarking on a, on a summer-long adventure. It's actually going to be beginning a new tradition for us. In the summer we're going to dive. As a church, we're going to dive. In fact, we're naming uh, every summer series Dive. This is Dive 2011. And here's what we're going to do. For 10 weeks, we're going to focus on a book of the Bible or an aspect of theology, and we're just going to go deep into it. We're going to really dive into it. We're going to, we're going to find out what's there. Now, I've got to admit, I was excited about this. We've talked about it for a while, and I've been all over the map on it, because there's all kinds of stuff I'd like to dive into. It's May, and Justin's like, you know, I'm trying to plan worship, and, and you don't know what you're doing. I'm like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing about five things, and I've got to finally pick one. What are we going to do? So I prayed a lot. I had conversations, and I made observations, and I landed on this. This summer, we need to rediscover joy. We need to rediscover joy. We need to remind our faces that we have a reason to smile. It's important. We need to start smiling again. As individual Christ followers, as a church, we need to smile. Back in the old building, when we were about to embark on this journey out into Shanahan, I did a series, a sermon based on David's uh, confrontation with the giant Goliath. King Saul had offered him his armor and his weaponry to go attack the giant. But David knew better. As a shepherd, he used the tool of the shepherd, the weapon of a shepherd. And he went down to a brook and he chose five smooth stones. And he says, these are the stones I'll use to slay the giant. And we know from the Bible, it only took one and pop, the giant was gone. Well, for us in our move to Shanahan, we were facing a giant. And we needed five smooth stones for the task. And we've needed them all along. It wasn't just for the first day and then we put them away. We've needed them all along. Some of you may remember them. We named them faithful. We need to be faithful to what we're doing. You can't have people that are saying, yeah, here and there, whatever. We've got to be faithful to the task. We've got to be flexible. If you meet in, in portable facilities, you've got to be flexible. This morning you came in, you dropped off your kid, and you dropped him off in a different room than normal. You've got to be flexible. We've got to be focused. You can't be all over the place. What are we going to do today? What are we going to try? What's going to hit? What? You've got to be focused on the mission that God has in mind. You have got to be fearless as a church. I mean, I'm telling you what. Even though David went out there with courage, I promise you, his knees were knocking, wondering, is this my last moment? You've got to be fearless. And then comes the last one. We need to have fun. 
We need to have a good time doing what we're doing. I mean, it was cool to be together last week and to see people like smiling and, and laughing. And, you know, it's not, oh, we're church, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Enjoying the ride. Now, I'll admit personally, I'm pretty good at four out of five of these. It's way too easy for me to forget the fun. It's just way too easy. I've got that kind of personality that I'm going to drive, I'm going to be focused, I'm going to, I'm going to do all that. But the fun, the fun can get lost. The smile can go away as the stuff of life starts to beat us down. And let's face it, the, the other four, they seem so noble, they seem so spiritual. Faithfulness, flexibility, focus, fearless. Fun? Fun doesn't sound spiritual. Fun sounds frivolous. Are you kidding me? You're saying we've got to have fun as believers? What does the Bible say? Nehemiah 8.10. He's speaking to people he's leading and he reminds them of this. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Could it be at times that we lack strength because we lack joy? Is it possible that there's a connection between a joyful spirit And the lack of strength we feel in our lives or in the life of our church, God wants us to be people who are joyful. It's time to rediscover pure joy. Well, that point in my heart, in the direction of a four-chapter book, a letter in the Bible called Philippians, this letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi employs the word joy or a form of it at least 16 times. That's a lot of times for a four-chapter book. That's pretty significant. Paul lets us know how to be joyful in the face of pain and death, poverty and abandonment, spiritual and physical exhaustion, and when facing opposition. It's pure joy. He says we can experience pure joy. And today and throughout the rest of the summer, we'll learn that pure joy finds a way to smile despite the most severe circumstances. No matter what's going on in life, your heart can still be smiling. You can still experience joy. Now, I'm talking about something deeper and better than the pursuit of happiness. God does not want us all simply to pursue happiness. He wants us to experience deep and lasting joy. And that's very different. These two words are really not the same. Happiness is generally driven by circumstances. I'm happy when I'm at Six Flags. Until I get in the line and then I'm not happy. And then I get on the ride and I'm happy until I go to concessions and I'm not happy. You know? Uh, we, we're, it's driven by the circumstances of the moment. If things are good, I'm happy. If they're not, I'm not. Joy is a deeper level of internal and lasting satisfaction that is, exists despite my circumstances. No matter what's going on, I can still have that internal smile that leaks out on my face from time to time. When things are bad, it's tough to be happy. But when things are not good, I can be joyful. I've known people who've been unemployed for a long time. Money's tight. Hey, they're not happy about it. Well, you know what? There's still something going on inside that's saying, life's not over. I'm joyful. I'm good. I've known people who have been at the receiving end of a horrible divorce. Believe me, they didn't want to be there. But there was this quiet, gentle joy going on in their life. Something there that you said, wow, how can you be that way even though you're going through what you're experiencing? I've known people with physical disabilities and and chronic illnesses that wish their disease or their condition would go away. 
but they're still able to be joyful. And I've known people, I've had friends who died with cancer, lost the battle with cancer. And they would have rather been here. There was no happiness in leaving their family and friends. But there was this steady, consistent smile on the inside. There was joy. God wants us to be able to have that kind of joy. So we're going to take the next 10 weeks and dive into this little letter in the New Testament. And today we're going to set the stage for it. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16. In this chapter of the Bible, we're introduced to two entities in the life of Paul that become central figures in his life. One is a man named Timothy, and the other is a church named Philip, uh, the church of the Philippians. We're going to walk, I'm going to walk through this chapter just all the way through it. We're going to read it, and I'm going to make comments along the way. If you have a Bible, get to Acts chapter 16. And you know, if you don't have a Bible, start bringing one this summer. Go ahead and do it. In fact, we have some out on the table. Grab them, bring them in, and just start following along and seeing what we're doing together. Uh, The title over this chapter, if you look at it, says Paul's second missionary journey. He took three in all. This one took place from 49 to 52 A.D. And to aid our minds, what I'm going to do for this journey, I'm I'm going to place a map up here. Hope you can see it pretty well. The journey starts way down. Let's see if the pointy works. No, yeah, it's here. He starts way down in Jerusalem, heads up, spends some time in Antioch, and then from Antioch he begins his journey onto the north and east, circles back down. I'll point these out as we're going along the way. Just to aid you as you're, as you're watching, imagine he's uh, traveling through Wisconsin, but not. This is Asia, okay? A little different. Paul's second missionary journey. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra. So he heads on out. He leaves Tarshish, his hometown, Port City, heads to the next two dots on the map, Derby and Lystra, just under Iconium there. He heads there, and there he meets a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was, was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. <laughs> Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted to him to join him on the journey. That's pretty cool. From the outset, he meets this, this fellow who's, who's growing in the faith, someone who's shown spiritual potential, and Paul says, I want you to come along. He's going to mentor him on this trip. He brings him along the way, teaches him this way. No seminary this time. Come on, let's go, let's go do real-life seminary. Then it says, In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew his father was a Greek. Everybody kind of goes, Huh? What, what, in the, what are you talking about? What's going on here? Paul did something that I think is, is really cool. He did something that, that modern missionaries do. He contextualized. When he was going to reach a new group of people, he decided it was important in some areas, things that didn't oppose the Bible, to become like those people, to meld into some of their traditions and customs. He knew that if he brought this Greek boy along, every Jew was going to question, is he circumcised? And Paul was like, I don't want this to be the issue all along the way. Let's remove this issue right now. Imagine I were leaving as a missionary today to a group of people who don't eat beef. And Dennis is just so hooked on Big Macs that he can't help himself. And everywhere he's going, whoa, 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 pow, 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 in the Big Macs. Everywhere they'd be going, you know, nice guy, great message, but what's the deal with the Big Macs? Come on, it would become a stumbling block along the way. Why set up that barrier? So Paul removes the barrier and they head out on the journey. 
They went from town to town instructing believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the church was strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Verse 6, I love what happens here. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the areas of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, these are regions. They're not cities. And they're in way too light a print up here for you to be able to see just above Antioch on through this area. For us, it would be the equivalent of a state or a province. It's not a city. It's traveling through that area. And something happens there to Paul that's really cool. It says he, he was traveling through the area of Phrygia and Galatia, because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. They're like, what? The Holy Spirit didn't want him to preach? Are you kidding me? What's going on there? And it says, then coming to the border of Mycenae, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. I mean, he's being blocked by God himself. He's moving along, he's going in a direction, and God says, no, you don't preach there. And he goes another direction, he says, no, you don't preach there. Now you've got to kind of wonder why God didn't say, why don't you go preach there? Instead of blocking him, why didn't you just say, go over here? You know what I love about this? This is the way ministry works for a lot of us. We know we're supposed to do something for God. We're just not sure what we're supposed to do for God. And so we just set out on the journey. And God, you're going along, you think it's working, all of a sudden, boom, you hear a slamming door. And you're, oh, okay. And you walk over here, and boom, you hear a slamming door. And, and, and we, we look at these slamming doors, and we say we must be doing something wrong. Paul wasn't doing anything wrong. God was guiding him by saying, not there, not there, not there. God had something better in mind. And that's important for us to see, that sometimes we'll set out on a, on a direction, on a journey, and God will say, wait a second, <laughs> go this way instead. Not a mistake, not a goof. We just need to be sensitive to the Spirit as we're walking along, as we're going along the way. So instead, they went through, through Mycenae to the seaport of Troas. So now you're all the way up here to here. <laughs> right there. Okay? He's booking along. He's at a seaport. And at this seaport, something happens that's amazing. It says in verse 6, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through... Oh, wait a second, sorry. Yeah, traveled through Phrygia and Galatia. Oh, wait. Hold on. Shoot, and I don't have a second service to get it right. Um, There we go. That night, verse 9, that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece, uh, just to the other side of the water there. Going further north, you see the, the, squirrely, the squirrely line going further north. He gets, he gets this vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So he decided, so we decided, not he, so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. What I love is he has this vision, he doesn't wake up and pronounce, hey, we're going. It says we. They actually took the time to say, is God speaking? We believe he is. It's not a shut door. It's an open door. They get on a ship. They sail to the other side. They hit an island along the way. And then they get to the the city of Neapolis. And it says, from there, we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. This is working so well that I'll just one more time. Sorry, not being cute, but... 
Way at the top, right there. Yeah, it's only a $100 thing. Don't worry about it. Kidding. Good. All the way at the top of the map. There are Philippi. Let me tell you some things about Philippi. A little background. When I'm looking at town names, I like to know how the town got its name. I grew up in a place named North Tonawanda. It made me wonder, what in the world does this mean? We live in a town named Shanahan, uh, where the river is made. I wonder what towns, especially when I'm going through Wisconsin, Wawatosa and Wausau and all these wa, a lot of crying going on up there, wah, wah, wah. Anyway, um, <laughs> what does Philippi mean? Well, interestingly, it's named after King Philip II of Macedon. Now, he means nothing to you, but his son does, Alexander the Great. So, dad's got a city named after him, Philippi. Prosperous Roman colony. Uh, all of them were Roman citizens, and they prided themselves on being good Romans. In fact, later in the passage, when, when Paul is causing insurrection in their mind, they say, these guys are trying to get us to, to not follow Caesar. We're good Romans. They've got to stop doing this. Citizenship is important to them. Maybe that's why when we come to chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and Paul's talking about our citizenship is in heaven, it, it, it rings for them. They hear that because citizenship, Roman citizenship, really matters. This was a place Roman soldiers went to retire. So you have this population of retired soldiers. You know there's going to be a a high level of patriotism in that place. The city had a decidedly Roman character. Latin was their dominant language. And it's also a highly religious city, honoring uh, many Roman deities. So bump down to verse, verse 13. Verse 13 says, On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. A couple interesting things here. When Paul goes to a new town, he normally looks for a synagogue. And that's where he sends times preaching until he gets kicked out. That's his starting point. He goes to Philippi. He doesn't go to the synagogue. There must not be a synagogue. Instead, he goes down to the river. I don't know, having last week in mind, you can kind of imagine it. No pavilion, no grill, no, no Ron making hot dogs. But, but there they are, down by the river. They're down by the river. And it says he was looking for people, and he found some, some women gathered there. And you know what I love about this part of it? There are people in modern times that just have Paul made out to be like a woman hater. You know, there's something wrong with Paul. He can't stand women. Uh, he finds these women at the river, at the riverside, and he doesn't say to Timothy, his, his young mentee, uh, these are just <coughs> women. We're not going to spend any time with them. We need to find us some men. Then do that. He spends time there with these women, being, beginning to talk to them. Verse 14, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, other side of the lake. And uh, she's a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. She's worshiping God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart. She accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with the other members of his household. Again, get last week in mind. Here she is out in the water with not Dennis and Justin, the Apostle Paul. Pretty cool baptism. And she's out there. She gets baptized. Her family gets baptized. And then it says, if you agree that I'm a true believer, come stay at my house. She urged us until we agreed. Uh, This is probably a person of some wealth. She has a house that's nice enough that she's inviting guests to come stay. I I do want to point out one thing here. With her baptism and the baptism of other people, by this time in Philippi and in other Roman colonies, 
the emperor was wanting to be referred to by two words in combination. Soter and kurios. He liked being called Soter and kurios. That may not mean a lot to you until I bring it over to English. Savior and Lord. The emperor liked being called Savior and Lord. And you were supposed to swear your allegiance to the Savior and Lord, the emperor. So when you got down into the baptism waters and Paul was saying, have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Uh, all of a sudden you're in a little bit of conflict with the Roman government, aren't you? You've got to look. It, it puts a little different spin on baptism, doesn't it? I mean, I love the fact that we get to celebrate, but truth comes, there might be a time that it's not just a celebration, it's a death sentence. It was a death sentence for these people. They were swearing their allegiance to a different Savior and Lord than the emperor. This was a gutsy thing for Lydia and for others to do. Verse 16. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, "These these men are servants of the Most High God. And they have come to tell you how to be saved. I love this. Demon-possessed girl is kind of saying, hey, this guy will tell you how to meet Jesus. Anyway, so she's doing this. Verse 18, I, I, I just, I love this part. It says, this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the girl with the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And instantly it left. Paul wasn't being nice at this moment. Paul's kind of ticked off. Paul's had enough. Paul's irritating. He goes, would you just come out of that, girl? I'm sick of this. I love that, that here he's just, he does this. And what happens? Well, the demon leaves the girl. Verse 19, her master's hopes of wealth are now shattered. So they grab Paul and Silas, grab them before the authorities in the marketplace. They say the whole city is in uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. And they're teaching customs that are illegal for us to practice as Romans. There's that allegiance to Rome again. The mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Now, stop there. I'm reading this. I read this chapter several times in preparation. And every time I came to this one, I went, you know, I've been through a lot of junk as a pastor. So far, I have not been stripped and beaten with wooden rods. When's the last time you were stripped and beaten with a wooden rod because of your faith in Jesus? You have a reason for some joy, don't you? We have some reason for joy that we can express our faith without that kind of thing happening to us. They're stripped and beaten for simply expressing who Jesus is and the difference that he can make in a person's life. And it says in verse 23, they were severely beaten and then thrown into prison. When I do something vigorous, I like to take a bath and then lay down on my bed and, and moan a little bit. You know, oh, my life. They're beaten, and then they're thrown into prison. No bath, no comfort, boom, prison. It's a horrible situation. Now, it says then the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, which I kind of find funny, that you have to tell the jailer. By the way, these guys, don't let them escape. Uh, Maybe it's just for emphasis because of what's coming here in a little bit. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Now just think of it. They've been beaten. They're in a dungeon on the ground, and now they have stocks clamped to them. Verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Stop here. I've been praying and singing. There's an earthquake. My chains fall off. You know what I do? God answered my prayer. Get out of the prison. Get out of there. I'm not hanging around. I'm running. God answered my prayer. You know what Paul does? Paul realizes that God does things for bigger purposes than just little old me. He sees there's something bigger going on here. It says the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew out his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to them, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. Even in this, he sees an opportunity to reach someone for Christ. Rather than, I mean, come on, he'd be saying, God, am I not a lot better off for you out of this prison than in this prison? And even in this, in this prison, he's bringing yet another person to Christ who ultimately forms the foundation of the church in Philippi. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon, fell to the ground, trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then comes one of the classic verses in the Bible. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of God with them and all who lived in the household. Even at that hour of night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone in their household had their spiritual wounds washed as they were immediately baptized. He brought them into a house and set a meal before them, and he and his household rejoiced because all who had believed. Rounding out the chapter, the next morning the officials come and say, you're released, you can go. Paul, though, he says, wait a second, we have a little problem. I'm a Roman citizen, Silas is a Roman citizen. You're not just sweeping this under the rug. You're going to come here and give us a public apology. You don't beat Roman citizens. So he makes a point of that, and the end says, there they met with the believers after they'd been released from prison back at Lydia's and encouraged them once more, and then they left the town. This short period of time leads to the formation of a church. Acts 16 tells of the story of the planting of a church in Philippi. We even know some of the names of the attenders. Lydia, Philippian jailer, that was his name. We have the names of these people. Later from a Roman prison, Paul pens a short letter. It's written for one to say thank you for personal support and supporting the church in Jerusalem. It's written to help the church that's facing persecution. It's written to emphasize Paul's partnership with them, their partnership with each other, and all of their partnership with Jesus Christ. And finally, it's written to help us understand what joy is. That pure joy finds a way to smile despite the most severe circumstances. I already mentioned, I read through this chapter numerous times, just kept pouring through it. I was already fairly familiar with these verses. And there was one part that struck me more forcefully than any other part. It's found in verses 24 and 25, where we read, So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. You know, I stopped there and I imagined the jail. I just, I thought about it. it I imagined myself with, with a beaten back, leaning against the wall with shackles on me. John Beaker's chained up next to me. 
And you know, as I'm thinking about it, I thought, what would I do? I'll tell you what. If John suggested, hey, why don't we pray and sing? I'd have been reaching for the jailer's sword. I'd have making John quiet really fast. Are you kidding me? Are you whack, man? We're going to sing? We're going to pray? We're in prison because we did the right thing. I'm not going to sing and pray. I'm going to blog about this injustice. You know, I'm going to update my Facebook status in prison for Jesus and quite unhappy. I'm going to let him know. I want an undislike button. The whole works. Pray out loud. Sing. Paul doesn't just talk about joy. Paul lived joy. He doesn't just talk about joy. Paul lived joy. Think about that. I mean, it's one thing for someone to say, you people need to. It's another thing for a guy with welts in his back and chains on his feet to sing and pray. You know what the passage says? All the other prisoners were listening. I promise you this. Whenever your back is beaten, whenever you are in your prison, whenever the shackles are on your feet, other people are listening. Your coworkers, companions, your kids, they're listening. Your church, they're listening. And they're wondering, are you going to sing? Are you going to pray? Are you going to pout and publicize it on Facebook? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? We all have prisons. We all face midnight moments, don't we? I mean, I love the fact that it happens at midnight. Midnight moment where you're about to face the the worst part of the night and you're just thinking about your junk And you just want to cry. You don't want to sing. You don't want to pray. How do you respond to those moments? Do you sing out loud? Do you pray so others can hear you? Do you exude joy? That's the real question. Or do you just whine? People around us are wondering when they hear us. So how will this Christ follower respond in his prison? I mean, you've got to remember, pure joy finds a way to smile despite the most severe circumstances. We're going to move into communion. And as we do, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to just do some guided reflection. Okay, so, so our servers are actually going to gather right now, and I'm going to pray. And um, I'm going to be asking you some questions. No music playing. Just asking you some questions, uh, things that you can spend time reflecting on and and talking with God. Let's pray to him right now. Father, I am grateful that Paul and Silas led by example and not just words. They, They didn't just preach a great sermon. They lived a great life. They didn't just tell us joy 16 times in the book of Philippians. Paul lived joy. And I'm thankful that we get the chance this summer to explore that and to realize that we can live joy-filled lives. Servers are coming now. Keep your head down. You'll know when the tray comes to you. And I want you to begin by just Identifying your prison and your shackles. What's the junk right now that gets you down? 
I mean, here's a guy, his back was beaten because he loves Jesus. He's in prison because he's telling other people about God. His feet are bound because people are afraid he's going to escape. This is a difficult circumstance. What's your prison? What sweeps the smile off your face? What draws the joy out of your heart and just leaves it cold? Now that you've identified it, I wonder, how do you react in prison? I'm not suggesting, nor is the Bible suggesting, that we need to literally sing and pray out loud. But do you sing and pray out loud? Even though you can feel the shackle around your ankle right now, can you say, but I really am joyful? despite my circumstances. Or are you just feeling bitter and burdened? Let me take it a step further. There are other people sitting in the prison with you. They're watching how you're living out your prison sentence. What do they see? Do they see joy? Do they see someone that just wants to end it all? Do they see anger, rage, complaining, murmuring? What do they see? Let me suggest a prayer for you right now. Say this to God. Help me, God, to find the joy. Help me, God, to find the joy. I know the shackle is not going to go away. This prison might even be here to stay. but I want to honor you by having joy. Have a seat. As you're seated, would you take your Southfield card, turn it to the back side. I have three assignments for you this week. Here's the first. And if you're going to do them, check them off. If you're not, well, you're just a rebel. No. (laughs) The first one is read the book of Philippians through one time. It's only four chapters. Short. And then... Read the first chapter three more times. Got that? So you're going to read the whole book once, then the first chapter three more times. Won't take very long, I promise. Second, compare and contrast your prison experience to that of Paul and Silas. Take the time to think about that story and about how you're doing with your story. Just compare it and contrast it. And finally, answer this question. What does my face say about my faith? What does my face say? 
say about my faith. Our ushers are coming right now. And you can place that card in as an offering. You can place your offering envelope in the offering right now as well. I do want to remind you, some of you are going to be vacationing. Uh, offering envelopes conveniently are addressed. You can keep giving uh, even when you're not here and supporting God's, God's work and, and your church family. A couple of things to, to point out uh, to you on the, on the front of the folder. We will make sure that that baptism video is up so you're able to watch it over and over again. You know what would be kind of fun is just, I link it a lot on Facebook. Get that thing out there. Brag it up. Brag it up. God did a great thing in the lives of these people. Make sure other people know about it. Don't forget, summer Sundays, you did a great job. You were all here at 930. In fact, you're all here a little early. So I don't know, next week maybe I'll switch the time again. Just to, I, I, I'm looking at my clock and I'm like, what's the deal? They're all here like 10 minutes early. This is so cool. I like it. That never happens. That's great. And uh, finally, this is just kind of a fun thing. Our garden is like actually growing pretty well. A lot of planting going on. Dave Papish was huge in getting, getting tilling done over there, getting us a water, water source. In fact, he's got a potato patch over there. We're calling it the, the Papish potato patch. You've got to check it out. Some of you have never seen the, the top side of a potato. You've only seen the stuff that comes out of the ground. But go over and take a peek at it. You can, uh, it's to the west side of our property over there, Longstone Driveway, about halfway up. You'll know a, notice a, a cutting in the grass and some fencing around it, go take a peek and see what's happening. Go back a couple times during the year, check it out. Uh, hey, if you've got grass clumpings and you don't like paying the buck to get rid of them, bring them over to us, preferably still in the bag, but bring them over to us. We're using them. We're trying to keep that thing moist throughout the summer as, as, the, as the heat starts to come, and then it goes back to cool. You know the routine. But anyway, uh, we could use those. So make sure you go ahead and participate in that. And one last thing before we sing our final song. You don't have to move your chair today. Like, we don't have to move anything today, which is a great thing. Leave your chair where it is. Now, here's what I love as we, as we head on out. This song is going to specifically talk about, again, how we can have strength, how that joy that we have in Christ brings us strength. Lead us, Dana. All right, you have to stand for this one. It's a good song, and don't forget it when you walk out these doors today, because you might need it this week. Strength will rise. Here we go. Say this out loud with me again. All of my life, in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship. Let, be, let that be the prayer that we offer up to him.